I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast, and I'm taking this time to ask you during the month of December to financially support the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute to advance individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support our efforts. This is the only time of the year when I make this request, so I'm adding something. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I'll gladly give you a shout-out on the podcast, or you can designate another individual to receive the benefits of that donation. Just visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started, and thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 16th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The debt-fueled big spending of the federal government has been going on for decades, and of course, it's even accelerated. It's not sustainable, and the costs of going with the flow may be devastating. David Walker is a former U.S. Comptroller General. He discusses his ideas to restrain profligate spending. You are credited uh, with your time at GAO, and this is a minor thing in the grand scheme of things, but uh, the, the thing that jumped out at me was renaming the office um, from General Accountability it was, it was, Office? No, it was the General Accounting Office, and it was renamed to the Government Accountability Office, and right. let me tell you why. Go ahead. Uh, when I came in as Comptroller General of the United States and CEO of the GAO, uh, the name General Accounting Office had been in existence since its creation in 1921, uh, and I, I, I knew from the outset that that was a problem. And the reason it was a problem is uh, general is a rank, not a, uh, not a, a descriptor. Uh, secondly, uh, GAO was not in the accounting business. Uh, it, it obviously did accounting for its own books, but it didn't do accounting for anything else, and it was an office. And so as part of my overall transformation effort, I wanted it to focus on insight, uh, uh, oversight, insight, and foresight, uh, and I wanted it to do uh, both financial auditing, performance auditing, policy analysis, program evaluation, legal opinions, adjudications, et cetera, and the common denominator was accountability. How do you improve the performance and assure the accountability of, of, of the government for the benefit of the American people? And so I knew early on that I wanted to change it, but what I didn't want to change was the acronym, because the acronym was GAO. And so therefore, uh, several years into my office, I said, all right, it's time to go for additional human capital reforms and flexibilities. And why don't we just go ahead and tag on changing the name from the General Accounting Office to the Government Accountability Office, which kept the GAO brand name, but eliminated confusion by new members of Congress, cabinet officials. It helped us in recruiting because when we were recruiting for PhDs and you know others, uh, you know, they didn't want to be in the accounting business. And, and in fact, we weren't in the accounting business. We saw during the Clinton administration, you know, a dovetailing or an attempt at dovetailing fiscal policy and monetary policy. Uh, in the Bush administration, of course, we saw sort of dramatic expansions in uh, spending. What was your general impression of those two administrations, how Congress worked with them, and, you know, some of either your things you were happy about or things that were disappointing with respect to fiscal responsibility during that time. You, like, I want to point out you were there from 98 to 2008. 2008. Well, first, let me know that I'm a political independent and I conducted myself in a professional, objective, fact-based, nonpartisan, and non-personal way. So I'm an e I was an equal opportunity critic uh, and complimenter, depending upon the facts. Um, the last fiscally responsible president we had in this country was Clinton. Uh, the one before that was Bush 41. 
Um, the first four years that I was Comptroller General of the United States, uh, uh, we had surpluses. Uh, two of those years, we paid down debt. Uh, we all know what happened in the tragic events of September 11, 2001, uh, and the spending that w- went along with that. But to me, what happened in 2003 convinced me that Washington was out of touch and out of control. Uh, number one, we had a second round of tax cuts that were supposed to pay for themselves. They didn't come close to paying for themselves and added to the debt. Uh, we invaded a sovereign nation without declaring war that was supposed to pay for itself. It cost trillions of dollars. That was Iraq. My son was a Marine Corps officer who fought there. Uh, and in addition to that, we expanded Medicare to add $8 trillion in new prescription drugs when Medicare was already underfunded $19 trillion. So that told me that things were out of control. Uh, and frankly, they've gotten worse since. Uh, and now we're we're on the precipice of debating this Build Back Better bill, uh, which uh, which we can come back to because I think it's uh, there's no way it should pass for a variety of reasons. We're speaking in California right now, and you are here in part to promote a fiscal responsibility constitutional amendment, uh, technically that may occur through an Article Five convention process. We will not discuss the ins and outs of the Article Five process, but uh, feel free to to browse Cato.org, listeners, if you're uh, interested in that issue. Um, but a fiscal responsibility amendment that is not a balanced budget amendment. So what does that look like? Well, you know, balanced budget, 49 of 50 states have a balanced budget amendment to their constitution. But yet we have a number of states that are basket cases with regard to their finances. And part of that has to do with how they define a balanced budget. They define balanced budget by balancing cash flows. So they can make huge promises for pensions, retiree health care, et cetera, uh, and, uh, and not fund them. Uh, and yet their financial condition is deteriorating, yet they say that they have a balanced budget. Or they can borrow money and use the proceeds of the, of the borrowing to use that cash to say that they balance the budget. So that doesn't work, all right? What really matters are three things when you're talking about fiscal policy at the federal level. Um, not deficits, not debt, but it's debt to GDP, interest as a percentage of the budget, and mandatory spending as a percentage of the overall budget. Those are the things that really matter. What matters the most is debt to GDP. Some level of debt is fine, uh, but too much debt serves to slow economic growth, reduce opportunities, and can create inflationary pressures as well. And so that's why I'm focused on debt to GDP. Okay. Uh, One of the things you mentioned is uh, interest as a fraction of GDP or the federal budget? Uh, The budget. Okay. So uh, interest expenses as a fraction of the federal budget, we're at what, 250, 275? And going up. but, but But here's the problem. Interest rates are artificially low right now. The Federal Reserve is artificially holding down interest rates. The Federal Reserve is self-dealing in U.S. debt by buying almost all the new U.S. debt in order to hold down interest rates because the debt has gotten so high. And yet you also have people out there now um, advocating for the so-called modern monetary theory, which says that deficits and debt don't matter as long as you can borrow in your own reserve currency unless and until you have excess inflation. Guess what? It's contrary to history contrary to long-standing economic principles, uh, based on a false comparison to Japan, and is downright dangerous. And in addition, we now are having excess inflation. And so, you know, that has given fuel to the progressives, liberals, socialists, call them whatever you want, who want to grow government even more, make even more promises, when in fact we already have $102 trillion in promises that we don't know how we're going to pay for. Give me a sense of what your idealized constitutional amendment uh, does and how you think over the 
subsequent years it would perform? It would do two things. One, it would set a credit card limit, a limit as to how much debt as a percentage of GDP the federal government can take on absent a formal declaration of war, which we haven't done since World War II, or certain events with a supermajority vote in Congress, a limited relief from that for specific reasons. Uh, Secondly, it would set a lower target of debt to GDP that we would seek to achieve uh, over a number of years with interim targets, triggers, and enforcement mechanisms if they weren't hit. And then there would be the ultimate um, uh, enforcement mechanism that if for some reason Congress decided to ignore all of these things, uh, then they would not be able to stand for re-election. They would lose their jobs. I'm going to try to pick this apart just a little bit. To the extent that lawmakers are constrained by a constitutional amendment uh, on their spending, on debt, uh, you know, overall that would limit spending, uh, how does that change the incentive to declare a war? Well, first, uh, when you declare a war, you know who your enemy is uh, and uh, you, you know what your objective is uh, and therefore you know when it's over. All right. Uh, and I think you would have to be careful in defining what we mean by war. Um, we're not talking about declaring a war on drugs. We're not talking about declaring a war on poverty. We're not talking about something along that level. We're actually talking about uh, the traditional concept of war, uh, which we which we last did for World War II. All right. So uh, you know, uh, so so I think there are ways that we can deal with this so that you can eliminate some potential loopholes that otherwise people might try to take advantage of in subsequent years. Uh, how do you, after this is uh, put into place, how do you think it would perform? What would we see in terms of uh, debt to GDP levels? What pressures would we see on Congress on an ongoing basis to cut or not engage in new spending? Well, one way that you can, one country you can look to as kind of an example is Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland uh, has something called the debt break. Uh, and the debt break. Uh, uh, is something that was enacted through a referendum of all the people, was overwhelmingly approved. And as a result of doing that, they dramatically reduced debt to GDP to uh, around the 40% range, which is very manageable. Uh, they have the highest credit rating in the world for a sovereign nation. Uh, the Swiss franc is far outperforming the U.S. dollar. Uh, and in addition to that, they they have, uh, they're, they're, I think, the second highest uh, household income uh, in the world uh, and are improving tremendously. They also have the highest labor participation rate of any country in the world. And so you can look to Switzerland, I think, as as the potential benefits of, of taking an approach like this. The other reason I say debt to GDP is because that means you're encouraged to grow the economy faster than the debt. You don't have to pay off the debt, but you have to grow the economy faster than the debt. At the end of World War II, we had debt to GDP of about 106% public debt. We took it down to about 35 to 40% by 1980. We didn't pay off a dime of debt, but we grew the denominator faster than the numerator. We had fiscal responsibility. Unfortunately, today we're doing the opposite. We're growing the, nu- the numerator faster than the denominator, and with known demographic trends, rising healthcare costs, and desire by some to grow government even more and to provide more uh, mandated promises, uh, that's not a positive future for our country. It's not a positive future for our, for our kids and our grandkids, and that's why I'm in the fight. Shifting gears just a bit here, uh, in terms of presidents and members of Congress, uh, who gets relatively short shrift uh, in the public consciousness with respect to fiscal responsibility? 
Well, coming back to what I mentioned before, I think that the two most recent fiscally responsible presidents were Clinton and Bush, 41. Uh, Clinton worked with Newt Gingrich uh, on a bipartisan basis uh, to try to be able to engage welfare reform, constrained spending. Remember, Clinton said the era of big government is over. Uh, some of his colleagues in the Democratic Party ought to take a look at that again. Uh, and, you know, Bush made some tough choices, uh, broke his promise uh, when, when he got the, the nomination to, to say, read my lips, no new taxes. Uh, what, what he should have said was, my opponent uh, has already said he's going to raise your taxes. I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that we don't raise taxes. Listen, people need to understand this. We're in a deep hole, and it's getting deeper by doing nothing. Um, the problem is primarily a spending problem. It is overwhelmingly a spending problem. We're going to have to reprioritize and reduce discretionary spending. Defense can't be taken off the table. We're going to have to restructure social insurance programs to make them solvent, same and secure. And we're going to have to raise more revenues. Hopefully, we can get a lot of it through growth, but we're not going to get all of it through growth. And so we're going to have to do some things on the revenue side as well, hopefully as part of intelligent uh, tax reform, simplification, and modernization. Uh, but we'll see. I was speaking with uh, Jonathan Bidlack recently, uh, of formerly of SpendingTracker.org. Check it out um, uh, now of R Street, and uh, he said that if Build Back Better in its current form, and we're recording this in early December, uh, if that is passed, uh, Joe Biden will have signed into law more spending than Donald Trump in four years or Barack Obama in eight years, and that just seems bonkers to me. Well, it's amazing. I mean, obviously, we're fighting a, a pandemic, uh, COVID-19, uh, and a lot of that spending has to do with COVID-19. Uh, but my real concern is uh, what are we proposing now and where we go from here? Uh, there was a bipartisan uh, critical infrastructure bill that was passed uh, that dealt with more traditional infrastructure, roads, bridges, uh, ports, airports, um, also included uh, broadband and a few other things, if you will. Uh, you know, frankly, our infrastructure has deteriorated dramatically. That had intellectual merit. If it's properly designed and effectively implemented, it can make sense. I've got concerns about parts of it. But now we see this Build Back Better bill. The Build Back Better bill uh, proposes to expand government further, increase mandatory spending, increase dependency on the government. Uh, it doesn't pay for itself. Uh, and to me, what's really outrageous about it is you know, they want to end up in uh, building new mandatory spending programs and say, don't worry about it. We're going to pay for it. Well, number one, they don't pay for it. Two, they're creating all kinds of budget gimmicks to to understate the cost. And number three, we've got $102 trillion in unfunded promises. What in the world are we doing making new promises when we don't know how we're going to keep the ones we've already met? So I think it's time to just say no to increase mandatory spending directly or indirectly until we take steps to try to be able to put our finances in order. And to do that, we need a constitutional amendment and we need a statutory fiscal sustainability commission that will engage the American people with the facts and the truth and the tough choices, solicit their input on reforms, make recommendations to the Congress that will be guaranteed an up or down vote in Congress. Uh, uh, Simpson Bowles on steroids. That's what we need, because if you think that the regular order is going to solve this problem on a piecemeal basis, you're dreaming. David Walker served as Comptroller General during the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.